Got nine minutes to maximize your travel and casino experience? Welcome to Zorkcast, powered by Travel Zork, helping you travel smarter, gamble smarter, and maximize your adventures. From airline miles and hotel points to living in the lap of luxury in a Las Vegas casino, you'll find all of the knowledge you need to travel in style, brought to you in nine minutes or less. Okay, well, sometimes more than nine minutes, but always less than 36. Now, please welcome the hosts of Zorkcast, your friendly neighborhood American, Michael Mason Traeger, and everyone's favorite Brit, Steve White. Hello, this is Michael, and welcome back to Zorkcast. Today, I am joined by my co-host, Steve, and a wonderful guest for our season finale, and that is Gary from view from the wing. And before we get at it, I figured I would just cover a few of the things that we're going to be talking a little bit about today. That includes Steve is going to be talking a little bit about the world's longest flight. I have no idea why for his final bits. And I'm going to talk a little bit about Stardust in our history segment, mostly because I keep referring to Resorts World, which will be opening in July, as Stardust. So, welcome everyone. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? Great. Steve, you were mentioning some tier extensions today. So, maybe just before we get at it, you can mention some of that because I know you love to follow that stuff so closely and I don't. But I know there's a little bit of news on some of the casino loyalty tier extensions. Yeah. So, this is purely coming out of the casino world rather than the travel world. But so, M Life have extended express comps through to the end of May. So, if you've got any of those saved up, you'll be pleased to hear they're not disappearing. And I know a lot of people from Canada and the UK in particular who still can't travel into the US will be happy to hear that. And Cosmopolitan in Vegas as well have extended status until December. They haven't announced that officially yet. It's been posted, though, by a very reliable source. The slot, the vice president slots at Cosmopolitan has posted it on Vegas Fanatics. And that's definitely an authentic account. So, we're good. We're extended to the end of December. And I'm sure a lot of people are relieved about that, but maybe they yes. just need to get themselves to Vegas. So let's well, let's jump right into it. We have Gary left from View from the Wing. He is one of my favorite miles and points and travel loyalty gurus. He has had his blog going for so long. I don't even know how many years it's been, but it's been a long time. Maybe he could tell us that. But I would consider it's one of the number one resources that I go to when I want to read about travel loyalty, miles and points, and just get some really good scoop about what's going on. So, Gary, thank you for joining us today. Oh, no, good to be here, gentlemen. Happy to talk about this stuff all the time. Thanks. Well, one of my you know, topics that I've been thinking a lot about lately is that I've thought that over the last year, it's been somewhat of a bonanza for people with award redemptions, using upgrades, unlimited free domestic upgrades, not only from the fact that there has been a decent amount of award availability, 
but also, you know, it's so easy to redeposit and cancel reservations and things like that. But now Steve and I follow Vegas very closely and we're really noticing the revenue room rates are starting to rise towards Q3 and Q4 capacity. You know, I was in Vegas last week. Things are really starting to get busy again. So I'm thinking, I was sort of wondering, and this was just a personal opinion, I was thinking that, you know, is this bonanza of being able to redeem whatever you want or, you know, find the redemptions that most people would have regularly found difficult? Am I dreaming that that's going to come to an end? You're, I know you're relatively data-driven. So what's your opinion about the overview of that situation? Right. Well, so the basics of it are that we're certainly going to be seeing you know better deals and better opportunities now than we're going to see in the future. The question is when the future is, where it changes, right? So at the most basic, I think it's fair to say that when there are, there's a lot more capacity than demand, it's pretty darn easy to, you know, use points and get good deals for, you know, excess spoiling inventory. If you take a hotel, they have a certain number of rooms. Those rooms exist. Once a night is over, they can never sell that room night again. It costs them almost nothing to you know make that available as an award. So they're you know dumping their excess inventory you know at a deep discount you know through a an opaque channel, which is their own loyalty program, in a way that they hope won't cannibalize their you know other revenue. And the same is true for airlines. An airline plane takes off with an empty seat. That seat on that particular flight can never be sold again. And so they, you know, that's the least expensive inventory. They make it available for the least amount of, of money or the fewest number of points. And we're not going to see the scenario again where, you know, Every hotel everywhere is empty and, you know, flights are empty, you know, but you know, where there does continue to be unused inventory, there will still be deals. And that's always been true. Right. So, you know, when there is a you know, new route that hasn't taken off yet or there's a foreign airline that flies somewhere for a reason other than because they're filling the plane. Right. I always thought it was sort of weird in a way that you had, you know, nonstop flights to DC from, you know, Doha, Abu Dhabi and Dubai. Right. And most of the passengers that are going to be in these planes are like connecting India, Pakistan from wherever, you know, they're through the Mideast. And these you got these three, you know, pieces of daily service. Right. So there's always going to be excess capacity on these flights because they may be flying. You know, look, DC is the capital of the U.S. It's important to have this, you know, direct connection between commercial centers or political centers, you know, and the U.S. capital, even if the planes aren't full. So, you know, opportunities there, and we're going to keep seeing opportunities, but you're not going to find, you know. A whole lot of great award seats right now to Florida, even though travel is still off by, you know, call it 40% overall in terms of daily passenger numbers in the U.S. The flights to Florida, right, are pretty full. It, you know, flights to domestic leisure destinations. That's where people are going. There's a disproportionate number of people going to those, and people aren't going to traditional business destinations. But it's not any different than the same reason I was always a fan of, you know, shoulder season at resorts, right? I don't want to go where everybody else is going when they're going. It's You don't get as good a deal or, for that matter, as good an experience when the place is completely full. So, you know, the deals are going to be had when you look to go where other people aren't going. It's just that, you know, like, over the last 12 months, other people weren't going 
anywhere, right? And so you could go you know, anywhere and get a deal. So the question is, when do deals go away? It varies by destination, right? So domestic leisure destinations you know, go away first. Not a whole lot of deals in Florida. You know, increasingly fewer deals in Las Vegas. More deals in places that are you know, more business destinations that have not been as open during the pandemic. And we'll be seeing deals internationally. Many places, many borders remain closed, may for some time, but flights will likely come back ahead of demand, especially from you know foreign carriers. Maybe U.S. carriers won't bring back as many flights until they're you know, ready to fill them. Although perhaps you know some of these flights are driven by cargo as much as passenger revenue, and so when cargo justifies it, you have these empty flights. Years and years ago, United used to run a San Francisco Nagoya flight, right? You get your like Toyota contract, and it's being driven by cargo, and you've got you know seats that are flying. And when I couldn't get an award ticket in a premium cabin to you know Asia any other way, I knew I could always get a premium seat on the United Nagoya flight, right? Because it's like empty. Well, we're going to see a lot of those over time. You know, it'll be maybe harder to get award seats on some foreign carriers just because of the retirement of larger aircraft like the A380 by some airlines. If that's replaced by a smaller plane, fewer seats, there won't be as many leftover seats to claim with awards. But you know, that'll be a process over time. I think we'll see you know awards on foreign carriers be much more viable for longer than say US airlines or domestic flights. So you would say now might be a great time to really try to do that Japan Airlines first class redemption or Cathay Pacific if you can find a destination that will hopefully be fine to travel to maybe in Q1 or Q2 of next year. I mean, this might be a good time to seek out some of those opportunities, which might have been a little bit more difficult before. Yeah, I mean, my consistent approach throughout this has been to you know book awards and you know especially awards that are changeable or fully cancelable and you know first of all it's given me something to look forward to right because you know gee maybe this country will open at this time we'll see right I mean I've got a Southeast Asia trip for you know the back end of the calendar year. Right, we'll see if it works. You know, I've had a bunch of Australia trips booked because the awards have been available and I want to see my family there. Right. I've got mm-hmm. new family members who have been born that I've never met, like more than one during this whole thing, right? And I can't go see them. So, you know, I keep booking those. You know, when, you know, flights cancel, okay, you know, and it keeps getting extended. When's Australia going to reopen? They have no idea. This week, their health minister says, you know, maybe we, we could vaccinate the entire country and we still might not open. So, 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 so like, when does you know, it end? You know, you know, we will never reopen. You know, I don't know. But one nice change that was made during this, right? American Advantage no longer charges cancellation or redeposit fees on awards to any member, period. So that used to be a benefit that I had as an executive platinum in the program. But now a base member, you book an award, it's just a no cost option to travel later. So, you know, you mentioned Japan Airlines, Cathay Pacific. These are, you know, One World American partners. Like, why not, if you've got the miles, you know, spread out all your miles down on future trips and cancel them when you need the miles back to put on a different trip, right? Just like, don't forget to cancel. 
Well, that's Steve and I have been advocating very strongly, you know, in the realm of Vegas, you know, book those placeholder hotel stays, you know, be it casino marketing offers or revenue offers, because everything can be canceled 72 hours before. And we've noticed an uptick in, especially with MGM, that they've been more generous with their casino marketing offers, like not necessarily host-driven offers, but totally loyalty program-driven offers. And we all know as more people start to book up and capacity goes, they're going to restrict some of those offers and the free rooms. So there's no reason not to try to figure out your dates and at least book placeholders. And we're noticing the same thing with revenue bookings. We've been doing this thing through Travels or Travel, where we actually are a real travel agent now. And we book a lot of preferred partner types of deals for win with the $100 food and beverage and all of that kind of thing. And they had a wonderful buy two, get one promotion through September. And that's also the kind of thing where so many people, you know, are waiting on this stuff. And I'm like, you know, if you can afford the deposit, which is refundable, you might as well hold some of these reservations because I really think Vegas is going to explode with weekend capacity in Q3 and Q4. I just think they, the rates they've are, also got the 100% capacity being allowed again, haven't they, from the 1st of June? Yeah, but you know what's funny about Vegas capacity? And I'm pretty certain about this. Even though Vegas capacity has been 50%. In the casino floor, restaurants, and other venues, nobody mentions this. The hotels are really not held to that. They could actually book the hotels to 100% capacity. It's usually just not in their best interest because if you take a hotel like Cosmopolitan, they don't really want to book on the weekend to 100% capacity when the pools are at 50% capacity because that's going to make for some <laughs> rather upset people when they can't go to the pool. So they have to balance that. But but, but but from a COVID perspective, you don't worry so much if you've got people in their room, right? Because we haven't seen significant you know virus spread between places that have walls, right? You know, there are aerosolized viruses that travel through an HVAC system. Like, we haven't seen that with this. So, you know, booking a hotel to 100% capacity doesn't seem like a huge deal, except, as you say, to the extent that it spills out into the common spaces. Now, you know, outdoor hotel pools, too, like, again, you worry less, right, in outdoor environments. You know, I'm more concerned about the indoor environments. And frankly, the the number of people there, it's a math question about the likelihood that someone there is spreading it to you. It's less protective of an individual and more about, from a public health standpoint, like how many people could get it in a super spreader event. Well, it, you know, it's limited by the number of people there. But this is all this is all ending because of you know, vaccination and simply because people are you know tired of it all for better or for worse, <laughs> right? I'm very uh, tired of it. <laughs> and there's just, I mean, these things aren't politically sustainable here the way that they are in some other countries, right? So, you know, we get these things lifted and this does bring more, you know, some more supply into the market that balances price. It makes awards more available. Same thing with, you know, when you stop blocking middle seats, like, well, okay, you're on a plane. If you're flying, you want that middle seat empty because you always want the middle seat empty. You know, the single best thing for, the, you know, the number one thing that determines your experience on a flight is the personal space you have. The food that you used to be served on board would taste better and the service would seem better if that middle seat was empty. But by selling those middle seats, you're also, you know, driving down price. So, yeah, no, it's a tough one. So when we talk, you know, it's interesting now. 
people have run into, you know, every week I hear from somebody who says, oh, my goodness, I've got so many miles. You know, I've got hundreds of thousands of American Airlines miles. And of course, I've always, you know, especially with our family and having lived overseas for so many years, we had no problem using our miles. So that was never, you know, and I was always happy about that. I always worry about You know, people who hoard miles because, of course, I mean, other than perhaps the currencies like ultimate rewards or or membership rewards. But I always am wondering when the next big devaluation is coming. So do you have any predictions on what you think is going to happen once things normalize maybe towards the beginning of 2022 with regard to airline devaluations? Like a good example is this American Airlines, these wonderful customer friendly you know, policies. Will they change and revert to the old system? I know United said that some policies are going to stay in effect forever, right? That are customer friendly. What do you think is going to happen with all that? Like devaluations, customer friendly policies, things like that? Well, so there are, you know, certain pandemic policies that aren't going to stay. United just reverted to its normal boarding procedure. American Airlines never change its boarding procedure, so there's nothing to revert. But I'm hoping that enhanced cleaning of the planes stays because, you know, frankly, planes could get filthy before the pandemic. And I like, you know, the idea that they're cleaner. But when it comes to change policies, we're seeing now less flexibility in fares that are purchased, you know, basic economy fares being no longer, you know, cancelable, changeable, for instance. But the change that United first announced last August that other airlines matched about no longer imposing change fees on most non-basic economy tickets. So that's going to stay, but that's largely because these change fees were no longer serving the purpose that they once did, because those were mostly about segmenting business and leisure travelers. And the need to segment these travelers with change fees has sort of gone away with the introduction of basic economy. So it used to be you would have high change fees, you would have 14-day advanced purchase rules, you'd have Saturday night stays, but those have generally disappeared with low-cost carriers who are driving the way that fares are set. So the introduction of basic economy is how they do it. And basic economy is not changeable at all, so they no longer need those change fees for that purpose. Devaluations are a whole other ballgame. In some ways, people were surprised by the devaluations that happened during the pandemic. You know, United and Delta both took a couple whacks at their award pricing during the pandemic. You know, and in both cases, these focused on partner awards. And there, where it made a little bit of sense is, look, they were conserving cash. It's the same reason that United would just refuse to give refunds to customers when their flights were canceled. Right. And the idea there was we don't want to give up money, even if it's illegal what we're doing, which Department of Transportation told them it was. You know, when you redeem miles for travel on United, there's you know not losing cat leaking cash out of the company. When you redeem miles on a United Partner, they're paying for that seat. So they wanted to make it more costly to use miles on partners, and Delta made you know, partner worth more costly too. So that wasn't entirely surprising. Plus, there were fewer people paying attention. Plus, there's never been a case that I've been able to come up with of a program that got rid of award charts that didn't subsequently and with some greater degree of frequency devalue their points, like ever. So... 
you know, a few months ago, the new head of the Advantage program said, look, we're going to keep award charts, but I don't get it. I don't understand why people care so much. Well, look, because it fundamentally establishes an expectation, there's expectation setting with members, and it serves as a constraint where you at least have to tell people what you're doing when you make the change. And so it is harder to devalue, you know, and as frequently when you have to tell people you're doing it. When it's hidden, you just do it. And, you know, some blogs pick up on it. It's just easier to do. And so we're always going to see that, especially with programs that have decided to, you know, sell their credibility in exchange for a short You mean dynamic, you mean dynamic award pricing isn't good for you? I mean, it just <laughs> is, it makes it easy and seamless. There are unlimited seats available. I mean, it might be 900,000 sky miles to get to Honolulu for one seat, but there's unlimited seats. Yeah, well, it's look, the, really, it's wonderful. <laughs> and then you look in U.S. programs, there already were unlimited seats even before, right? Because you had rule buster style awards or standard you know, award charts where you pay more miles for last seat availability. So it wasn't like you're getting something you didn't have before. You just, I, that's not quite true. You never had a million miles for the seat that you used to pay 25,000 miles for. But, you know, so, so no, it, it's never good, you know, for members. And now, at a broad level, you will see points inflation when there are too many miles chasing too few seats, right? At its most basic level, as the number of miles increases, but the number of available redemption seats doesn't, you've got a mismatch and you either are going to have scarcity and frustrated members or you're going to have prices of those seats rise. It's just basically understand the miles or points as a currency governed by the same rules of any other currency. You either have the goods you know, growing at the rate that the currency grows, right? Or the price of the goods has to change. And, you know, the rate of growth in points has accelerated as airlines have been successful at selling their miles. You know, it was sort of a, a very limited set of the world who knew just how you know, successful these airlines were at this up until recently. I mean, I used to write about how American Airlines, the entirety of their profit was being accounted for by the sale of miles, that basically actually moving planes from place to place was not a profitable enterprise for American, except that the more flights that meant the more passengers on board that they could pitch credit cards to. Right. And so they were, this is why I thought they were getting their network planning wrong, where they were backing away from places like Neo New York, because you know, even if they weren't that profitable, uh, you know, selling tickets in New York, you know, these were important credit card customers. And so if you don't have the flight network there, you're missing out on, you know, all of the New York money, which is where your profits actually coming from is, you know, people spending money on the, on the card. Yeah. I mean, beyond the scope of some of the things that we were talking about today, I find, the valuations of the loyalty programs to be absolutely fascinating. And I guess during the pandemic, when you found out how much Delta was worth, and I think United had some very interesting, you know, loans or exchanges with regard to the valuation of mileage plus, it really raises some eyebrows (laughs) when you see how valuable these programs are. Like you said, these programs are literally the entire airline. It's amazing. You know, because they've all now gone into the private debt market with their loyalty programs, American, Delta, and and United anyway. There have been a lot more disclosures related to the programs than there were before. You've also got offshore holding companies that the dollars are flowing through and the bondholders having rights prior to before a member redemption, these kinds of stuff. But the American Advantage program was appraised at being worth between 18 and 30 billion, and they borrowed 10 billion against it. 
right? But for most companies, marketing is a cost center, right? Not the primary driver of profit. That's fundamentally what the airlines have done is created something that is incredibly valuable. You know, they've turned marketing into a profit center, you know, by renting out their marketing engines to other companies because people so badly want, you know, care about travel. No, it's it's amazing. This is a very broad question, but we know the whole miles and points world has become more difficult or the game becomes more difficult each year for people. I know you write a lot about devaluations and award redemptions and the best credit cards. What would you say now, if I had to say to you, for somebody starting out or just getting involved who wasn't a road warrior, would there be any angle that you would say, hey, just focus on this airline or this credit card currency and try to make the best of it. But that's your one suggestion. You know, is there any one or two tips you can give people, especially the newbies? Because a lot of people are quite overwhelmed when they hear about all the wonderful things that you can do, but there's so much out there. So first of all, it really depends on what you want to get out of the program and what you value. So understand what your end goal in this is. If it's better treatment, at a hotel, then yeah, you're going to want to focus on the program to the extent that the business you're going to be able to drive is enough to get you the treatment that you want. If your goal is a free, you know, coach flight to Florida, look, just get yourself a good cash back card because you're not going to do better with a mileage card in terms of the return on it than you will, you know, earning strong cash back and, you know, buying the ticket you want and you don't have to mess with it. You know, so where do you get leverage? You get leverage in international premium cabin travel. You can you get you know some benefits out of better treatment from a brand, which you can generally buy, right? So you want to make sure that the you know what you're putting into it makes sense relative to what you're getting out of it. If you're gonna be a once a year traveler, you know, like years ago, back when the programs were easier in a game and more lucrative, you'd have people who would, you know, mileage run 100,000 miles. And this, like, seemed crazy. Well, how many trips are you going to do? I wouldn't know anyone like that. Right? I never heard of no, anyone but like, like that. <laughs> I mean, I, I get it. But, no, if you enjoy, if really what you're doing is just taking leisure trips and you call it a mileage run. But, I mean, I, I remember, I actually remember someone who did, you know, executive platinum without ever leaving the airport with American one year. And so, you know, just making sure that, it all tears together in terms of what you're putting in versus what you're going to get out. You know, for people who are truly new, track all your miles and points and certificates to sign up for an award wallet account, right? Put all your passwords in it and have it all in one you know, page in front of you and easy to, you know, easy to access. So you know, what your portfolio is, and then, you know, you want to concentrate on a limited number of programs, but don't leave points on the table. So sign up when there's an opportunity to earn because, you know, you may eventually get something at the other end. I would say that you don't get an airline credit card for spending on that card unless that spending is purely to help you with your status because otherwise you're going to do better with a transferable points card, whether it's from Chase or American Express. There are some niche cases for you know transferable city points, but you know basically you're looking at your you know, your Chase and Amex cards where you can you know, just have the flexibility to put the points to a place where they're most useful, where you get to pick later. 
Don't use the points outside of their kind of natural use. If you've got airline miles, don't redeem them for something other than air travel. In most cases, except for you know, Marriott mileage transfers, you know, don't redeem hotel points for something other than hotel stays because they're buying you know the product at a deep discount. When you're, you're redeeming for other stuff, they have to pay for it. And so you're just not going to get the leverage there. You're not going to get the value out of your Chase or Amex points if you're doing something other than you know transferring to a loyalty currency. Occasionally, when you're using the points to buy paid travel, you, you can you know get some decent value out of a Chase Sapphire Reserve if you've earned all your points at a premium number of points per dollar. And don't ever earn just one point per dollar because then you're think about it this way: you're effectively buying the mile at two cents a piece. <laughs> Right, because if the alternative is just a basic two percent cashback card, you're buying miles at two cents, which you probably wouldn't do. So never earn just one airline mile per dollar spent. You know, you need to do better than that or just get cash back. And when we're talking on that subject, a card that doesn't earn people very many miles, the American Express Platinum card, has a benefit call for the Amex Centurion Lounge. And I guess the other thing I have to side note in here, poor Steve is listening to this going, but I'm in the UK. I even have to pay foreign transaction fees on my Amex card, and I'm lucky to earn one one mile. So for our UK listeners, yeah, yeah probably other than the Virgin MasterCard, we yeah, can we earn 1.5. Very bad credit card deals over here. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's no accident, right? It's that, you know, interchange is capped. And so it's simply, you know, so the question is, what's it worth to spend to incentivize a transaction through the network? And when the value to the company of the transaction is much lower, right, they're not going to spend as much rebated back to incentivize that transaction. You know, that's anywhere with capped interchange, they're going to be less lucrative credit cards. Right. And that was the whole funny thing that they did in Europe with that is that was supposed to actually be consumer friendly, but it's the opposite of consumer friendly because it, I guess it helps the merchants, but it doesn't help the consumers at all. Well, I mean, look, merchants spend a lot on these fees. They'd like to spend less on these fees, right? So they lobby for it. And it's always better to do it under the narrative of being pro-consumer than saying it's about like your own bank account. Because it doesn't doesn't sell as well. You say, well, gosh, aren't credit cards costly to take? Well, guess what? Checks are costly to take too. People bounce checks. Cash is costly to take because people give the wrong amount of change or your employees steal some of it or you have higher insurance costs when you're carrying a lot of cash, you know, in the facility and you have to take the cash to the bank. You know, there's some studies that suggest you're paying like effectively 9% or more to accept cash in these other costs, you know, so it's really actually cheap to accept credit cards plus, you know, people are more likely to make the purchase with the credit card because of the convenience and not having to have the cash. They tend to make larger purchases with credit cards. So it's a huge boon to the merchant to take credit cards. Right. But there's this like idea, oh, were the, the merchants taking it on the chip? The Western Fort Lauderdale Beach Resort that I've written about that's charging mm-hmm. customers, you know, they were charging a 2% fee to pay by credit card. So if you took a Marriott credit card to the Western Fort Lauderdale Beach Resort, they're hitting you with 2% as a penalty for it. <laughs> And this isn't because of the you know high cost of accepting credit cards. It's like, look, you're at a resort. You know, you didn't bring your checkbook with you. You, know, you never thought that this was going to be a thing. You're not going to go find an out-of-network ATM on your vacation to go pay cash to avoid the credit card. So it's a way of like jacking up your bill 2%. 
So I think somebody commented on your article. Oh, I would have paid them, but I would have paid them in quarters. I would have gone to the bank and just gotten quarters and literally gone to the front desk and paid my entire folio in coins because of that. The, the, the crazy thing is Marriott like cracked down and says, no, you're not allowed to charge a 2% fee anymore. So, so you know what they're doing now? They're charging 1%. <laughs> like, but it's not, you know, oh, you know, like, what was me, you know, the merchant? It's it's a way of sticking it to consumers. So, yeah. Yeah, and that's companies test those things. You know, when Vegas first opened in June, I went to Mona Migabi, and that first week that they were open, when Vegas reopened, they added a COVID fee to the check, which was a optional. And it, we have to know, I mean, they've just reopened Vegas. Like, what the hell's a COVID fee? It was just like, hey, let's put a, let's put a surcharge on and see <laughs> if it sticks. Obviously, it didn't stick, thankfully, and nobody else did it. But, you know, like a lot of other things like resort fees and other fees, I sometimes feel the brands are testing the waters, right? I mean, hey, if we could, you know, get away with a COVID fee, maybe this will be something that'll stick. So pivoting back really quickly, because I could go on talking about this stuff forever, But pivoting back really quickly to the Amex Platinum Centurion Lounge, I know they announced a devaluation there that guests are going to become an issue in the future. Actually, it's not real soon. And I was wondering about your thoughts because I didn't think it was a really big deal. And, you know, I sort of always thought that, I don't know, I mean, that the guests should be limited because the whole purpose there is really for the road warriors to have access to a lounge. So what do you think about this whole Amex guest pass devaluation for Centurion lounges? So there's two separate things. One is the lounge crowding issue and how do you address that? And two is the particular set of policies American Express has promulgated in order to address it. So on the question of lounge crowding, it is always the case that if you create a nice lounge, even knowing that people are going to want to use it, it's going to be busier than you think that it is. It just always will be. You never expect how many people are going to show up at the airport early. You never expect how often they're going to use it, like every time they're at the airport versus every occasional trip, you know, and you know, they're going to make an effort to spend time there. And it will always exceed your expectations. No matter how many times you expand the lounge, the use is going to expand as well. And it's even going to be self-reinforcing because you expand the lounge. It's not as crowded. It's like nicer. People want to be there more. So American Express lounges are, you know, introduced a nicer standard than was common, say, with U.S. airline lounges, better food, better drink, you know, more stylish surrounding. It's like nicer. And so people wanted to spend time with them and therefore they became overcrowded. Now, There are things that they've done over time that haven't been enough. They have limited the ability to buy day passes for non-Platinum or Centurion card members. They have limited the amount of time prior to a flight that you can be in the lounge. They have made a departure only. You actually have to be confirmed on a flight to get in. So, you know, non-revs for an airline, you know, can't get in until they're actually on a flight. And all these things reduce the crowding in the lounge. But there's like pre-pandemic, they're still really crowded. And during the pandemic, they've had limited, you know, limitations for social distancing. So, again, capacity challenges. There was a time when the Seattle Lounge was even you know, giving out Starbucks cards. Like, look, we're full. You can't come in. Have a Starbucks card. So I was telling everyone, you know, hey, run over to the Seattle Center. They're like giving you free Starbucks cards. <laughs> so what do they do? So two years from now, they are going to say that 
Centurion black card holders still get their guests, right? They're just like they get their, you know, the reserve tables and some better champagne in the lounge. Which, if you didn't know this, you know, black card members, you know, have these carve outs in the lounge. In Hong Kong, there's a separate sit down dining, you know, once it reopens, but you know, sit down dining for black card members only. But platinum card members will no longer be able to bring guests into the lounge for free starting two years from now, unless they spend $75,000 a year on the card. It'll cost them 50 bucks to bring in a guest. You can still, you know, put authorized users on your account and those authorized users have cards. They can come in. So, you know, my wife has an authorized user card on my account. We can both go in. There's no guest issue there at all. However, if my wife and I are traveling together and we want to bring our two-year-old into the lounge, 50 bucks, right? And they even considered her to be a guest when she was five months old. So I got two guests. There were four of us. My wife and I each had a card so we could like get all four of us in because they were counting my five-month-old as a guest. 50 bucks to bring her in. Hmm. If you got two kids, right, it's even if both parents have cards, you know, you can't give a two-year-old an authorized user card. So two kids, now it's, you know, 100 bucks to visit the lounge, say, in each direction. And, you know, that should make a difference in crowding, asterisk maybe. We'll see if there is also, you know, if, if there's a new product that adds Centurion Lounge Access. And remember, they just added before the pandemic Centurion Lounge Access to the Delta Reserve card, making it potentially more crowded. So they've got to offset it because they got these Delta folks coming in. You know, Do you think, though, so? I mean... It seems somewhat reasonable to me to charge for guests, you know, for all of the reasons stated. But I think, and you brought this up, we were discussing this a little bit before the show, and I always thought this based on what I call the Mohegan Sun model, where, you know, Mohegan Sun went to a system where you used to have unlimited lounge access, you know, for some cardholders, it was Sunday through Friday, for others, it was seven days a week, but they gave you a certain number of chits per month. And those were for your lounge access and for your guests' lounge access. And I always thought it would be rather brilliant if they could just put electronic lounge access vouchers on and in your calendar year you got so many visits to the lounge which also included guests and when you use up all your chits then you pay for lounge access whether it's for you or for your guests but i was thinking maybe it's a technology thing that they just don't want to deal with it but i thought how nice it would be if you had two guests one time or if you're by yourself most of the time and say they give you i don't know 30 visits a year or 50 visits a year or even if it's you know 20. and then you just or 20 yeah and you just use them as you desire to use them. And if you're a real road warrior and you're there every single week, then maybe you need to hit the spend threshold or you just accept the fact that after your 20 visits or 25, you have to pay. What do you think about that kind of thing? Yeah. Like, do you think that could happen? So, I mean, two or three years ago, maybe four years ago, I wrote something suggesting you know, just this idea that you give a certain number of visits per year to a card member. That's what comes with the card. Whether you buy more or you earn more, you know, that, that's a possibility. But I would much prefer that over the model of every guest is, you know, that you can come in as many times as you want. You know, if you fly every day of the year, you can use the lounge 365 times. But if you want to bring in, you know, your two-year-old once, it's 50 bucks. So mm -hmm. because there's an emotional component to, you know, when you travel with your family and you take care of your family or for that matter, they travel without you. You know, how are you able to take care of them 
you know, I care a lot more about how my family is treated than how I'm treated. And you've taken away the ability to sort of treat them to the experience, you know, that I get all the time when I'm traveling on my own. And so that actually, you feel that. And frankly, it's even awkward. Oh, you know, that'll be 50 bucks, sir. You know, in front of your friend, oh, we should be able, let's turn around then. It's not worth 50 bucks. You know, no, no. Well, how about, no, it's interesting. Well, Steve, Steve's wonderful son just turned one today, right? No, it's next Friday. Next Friday. Okay, I was so off, but I knew that. he was going to be. So what do you think about this, Steve, being a UK Amex Centurion clown? I mean, except that you're usually, you know, escaping to Vegas alone. But what do you think about this family and lounge access? I still think you should take the family to Vegas, though you don't agree with me. You know, as a, <laughs> and, your son, and, and your son has a passport, right? I mean, yes, they, as, yeah. So uh, what do you think about this stuff? Does this turn you off? Or do you not think about it so much because you're dealing – there's supposed to be a Centurion Lounge eventually at London Heathrow. But I think those plans – I think it was T3 actually. Yeah, it was supposed to yeah. be T3. It's but now – It's supposed to be open by the end of 2020, wasn't it? But it obviously <laughs> currently Terminal 3 is – well, Terminal 3 is closed right now, isn't it? So Yeah. So what do you think, Steve? Does this sway you anyway? Does it, does it impact – it probably doesn't impact your Platinum card very much because you have no other choices in the UK. Well, it doesn't really impact, no. And, and the other thing is, to be honest, when I'm going through the airport, I'm normally using the BA lounge anyway. So really, and if you're traveling through Heathrow Terminal 3, you've got a wonderful selection of One World lounges there. So to me, it's not a big deal, I must admit. But that might partly be because at the moment it doesn't affect me. <laughs> Well, Maybe you know, when it does the, the, affect me, it'll be a bigger deal. <laughs> you know, the perspective is so different, Gary. Having lived in London, you know, even if I was taking a flight on BA to Amsterdam, the fact that I would have first wing and I would be able, you know, as One World Emerald, use first wing, have private security, which drops me directly into the lounge. I don't even have to check into the lounge. Yeah, I can exactly. grab an espresso and go to my flight is just such a different kind of experience than the US lounge experience. And of course, the fact that most of the time I was flying BA out of T5. It just is such a night and day kind of All the experience. Stuff, uh, alcohol you can possibly imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a different perspective then. You know, I used to say, for me, the most valuable aspect of it was the private security at First Wing. You know, because you literally could show up exactly an hour before and still grab an espresso and make it to your flight. <laughs> and to me, that was very valuable. I didn't really want to be in the BA first lounge for a long time if I just had a flight to Frankfurt, you know, or something like that. So it is interesting. One final thing just to close this out, Gary, they've announced this two years in advance. Do you think that's done on purpose so that Amex can sort of see what the feedback is? Because that, I mean, I always complain when airlines hit you with things or, or brands hit you with things last minute, but this seems like almost two too proactive to me. Yeah, so I mean, we usually see benefits like this that change with a year's notice if they're significant in some degree with credit cards, because there's actual regulation you know, for that. Now, they may be able to get away with it with just 90 days in terms of a regulatory environment, but it doesn't surprise me that we're seeing a significant notice. A full two years is quite a lot. But, you know, they're also going to have to give people an opportunity to coordinate their spend. So you do it in three months. Like they don't want to just say it's only for the people that are already spending $75,000. they are going to want it to be for people who, you know, increase their spend. So get their spend in order and give them more spend so that it, maybe it's an incentive there. Again, 24 months is more than I expected, but it doesn't surprise me that we see a lot. 
Wow. Well, this isn't great. I mean, like I said, these are topics I could talk about forever. We're going to blow through the rest of the episode really, really quickly. But before I do that, Gary, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? I know you're very, very responsive to your readers. Just tell them where they can find you and how they can, you know, communicate with you. So viewfromthewing.com. I'm at Gary Leff on most social media channels and Gary at viewfromthewing.com. Excellent. Great. Well, thank you. We will do our formal goodbyes in a moment, but I will first, I was going to do a little bit of a history segment on Stardust, mostly because I've been thinking about, not only is it one of my favorite properties, but I've been thinking about it a lot because of Resorts World. And I joke with people when I went last week to see the Virgin Casino in Las Vegas, that I'm always going to say I'm going over to Hard Rock because it's the Virgin. And I really feel that whenever I go to Resorts World, I'm going to say I'm going to Stardust, because that was the site of where Resorts World was. And it was when Stardust was, you know, closed in 2006 and then imploded in 2007. It was supposed to become a resort called Echelon, but then that didn't work out for so many reasons, you know, including the financial collapse of a lot of the world. And so I've been thinking quite a bit about it. But what's so interesting, one of the interesting things is when Stardust first opened in 1958, it was the world's largest hotel. And that was at 1,065 rooms. So that's sort of interesting to think about. And then it eventually went to Boyd Gaming after a bunch of issues that had to do with skim and mob and mafia, which is all very interesting. But I think we'll do a whole episode on this eventually. But if you ever watch the movie Casino, that the Tangiers really is the Stardust. So it's it's interesting stuff. Also, Stardust, you know, historically, that's where the sports book in Vegas. The modern sports book was born. And if you think about it, now with Circa, the modern sports book has been reborn. So that's interesting to look at. And it was also the home to a lot of interesting Baccarat play. But one of the interesting things that people don't realize is that is the first casino that had a female Baccarat dealer. Oh, well, so, that's important to you, Michael, in particular. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I thought that was very, very interesting. But we'll circle back to Stardust. Well, maybe that's time. a good first episode next season. That will be great. So, Steve, what's your, your final bits today? What was on oh, your mind this week? I was reading this earlier this week, and it, it struck me as interesting because I kind of didn't necessarily believe it. But perhaps it's true. Maybe you guys could tell me if I'm wrong because you may know the answer to this. But supposedly the world's longest commercial flight took around 30 hours and was the double sunrise service by Qantas which ran from Australia to Sri Lanka in the 1940s. Did you know this? Is this? Because I kind of thought, well, is this really true? But apparently the flight often lasted over 30 hours. And the reason it was called a double sunrise flight is because passengers effectively saw the sunrise twice in both destinations. Have you heard of this? I haven't. No, never? Well, so, 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 well, so apparently, yeah, so apparently it's the longest flight. And I found this, to me, this is quite interesting. But today, the longest commercial flight, do you know what it is today? In Newark, Singapore. I was going to say. Yes, it is. It is. Wow. That is impressive knowledge. Do you know how long it is? Do you know the average journey time? I within the 18-hour range. Yeah, 17 hours and 50 minutes. So there we go. So that was my random final thought for the day. But also, just as a little bonus, seeing as this is the very last episode, the shortest commercial flight, which takes less than two minutes, is actually between the neighboring islands of Westray and Papa Westray 
in Scotland's Orkney Islands. And it takes two minutes, actually around one and a half. And the fastest time it's ever done it in is 50 seconds. And that's a commercial flight here in the UK. So there we go. Random fact for you to finish off this season. <laughs> but do you know what is the shortest international flight? Ah, oh, so you knew this was going to backfire on me. <laughs> <laughs> shortest well, international flight. Hmm. Give me a clue. I have some guesses. I mean, if I were to give you a clue, I would say that it is between two capitals in Africa. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> There's no way I'm getting this, Michael. This is all on you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's this is why they haven't invited us for Jeopardy yet. <laughs> so what would what would that be? I have no idea. It's from Kinshasa, uh, Brazzaville. Interesting. Hmm. Well, there we go. I'm sure someone's going to tweet us now, by the way, and say, you're wrong. This is this is the world's longest flight. This is the world's shortest so flight. You know, well, there are probably a lot of short flights, but it's the matter yeah. of the shortest. Like, I could even think things between Mexico and, you know, the United States. There are some rather short flights in there, but mm. it's a matter of it being the shortest, I guess, is the is the issue. Interesting. Gary, any final words or anything, any final tips or words or something that's been on your mind that you'd like to finish up with? And once again, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a great episode. I'd say one of my favorite topic episodes, but anything you'd like to close with? Yeah, look, I guess I would just say that the way to win at these games is to focus on what you value, making sure that you're getting that and that you're not being gamed by the program, that you should view Loyalty currency is something to enjoy in the near term. So you earn and burn in the same period. Then you don't really care so much when a program devalues because look, you've earned all your points under one, you can call it an award chart, and use them in that same chart. And then there's a new set of rules and a new pricing structure, and you'll you know attenuate to that. And then you don't have to worry about it so much and use them as a means to the end of seeing the world, of experiencing the world in a way that you might not otherwise be able to. But there's no way that I would be ever you know, flying private if it wasn't for taking advantage of opportunities through loyalty programs. I would never see the kinds of suites that I've been able to see fly in the cabins or travel nearly as much as I've been able to travel, and I count myself as an incredibly lucky person. It is because of my focus on the opportunities that these you know, companies and programs have provided. So rather than being grumpy at the changes and when I feel they've acted unfairly, I'm grateful for the opportunities that I have had and hopefully will have again in the future. That's awesome. And that's a great note to end on. Everybody, thank you for joining us today. And... Until next time. You've reached the end of your stay with us on this episode, but we encourage you to visit our website for more resources at TravelZork.com and to continue the conversation on Twitter and Insta at TravelZork and on the ZorkCast Facebook group. Travel smarter, gamble smarter, and maximize your adventures right here on ZorkCast. Until next time, dream big and remember, a dollar won is twice as sweet as a dollar earned.